Good evening, you are listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Rob Zachney. Tonight I am joined by Relics Quinn Duffy, Senior Designer on Company of Heroes and Lead Designer on the soon-to-be-released Company of Heroes 2. Quinn, welcome to the show. Hi, it's uh, nice to be here. We're also joined by our friend Shane Neville, former Relic producer and a developer with Slick Entertainment. Shane, thanks for coming on the show. Hello, gamers! Oh, that is shameful, Shane. That No, <laughs> we, do, we do not steal Bruce, Bruce Garrick's catchphrases here. Okay, I'm sorry. Good to be here. Big fan, long-time listener, first-time caller. Yeah, well, after that little incident, after that outburst, it'll be the last time. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Okay, so today we're going to be talking about Company of Heroes, uh, its expansion, Opposing Fronts, and in a nod to Quinn's upcoming game, the challenges of faction design and expanding on what you could consider near perfection. Uh, But first, I want to talk a little bit about your roles with the original game. Uh, Quinn, let's start with you. You were listed as a senior designer. What was your sort of area on Company of Heroes? Uh, I was doing um, gameplay for the for the most part, the sort of core we call core gameplay. So, the systems, the army design, the um, ability design, you know, helping out with the unit balance and and uh, and that kind of thing. So, um, everything outside of campaign, more or less. And Shane, uh, you you came into the middle of opposing fronts, correct? Yeah, I came in shortly after Opposing Fronts started uh, as the producer, and then uh, I was the producer on Opposing Fronts till after it shipped, and then we kicked around a couple more projects that didn't get greenlit, and then I left Relic. Uh, so, what what were you? What was your area of responsibility on Opposing Fronts? Uh, what what's he, what areas were you overseeing? Um, I was the producer, so basically, I worked with the leads, uh, lead designer, lead artist, all of them, to make sure that the game got done acted as liaison with THQ to make sure all the marketing stuff and all the, the sales stuff was lined up. Um, just basically whatever it takes to get the game done. Okay, so okay, so production is kind of a uh, you know Johnny-on-the-spot kind of role, huh? Yeah, you're you know, between picking up donuts for meetings and uh, making sure that you know, the air conditioning is turned on for people that are working late, uh, as well as making sure you know, the vision for the whole game is complete and everyone's going in the same direction. It's, it's really a catch-all role. Uh, project management and direction wise so quinn when it comes to the original uh company of heroes it always seemed to me that it was it it was kind of odd that it became so successful and was such a seminal rts because when i first played it uh what amazed me the most is just how much it seemed like a lot of the war games i'd grown up playing uh i was particularly reminded of the close combat series but company of heroes more than anything i'd ever seen really reminded me of an RTS that was borrowing liberal, liberally from a hardcore wargaming tradition. Yeah, I think I think that's, you know, it was part of the of the goal of that game, you know, w- way back we talked about real soldiers, real battlefields, real war and and it was to kind of inject um, you know, kind of a tactical ethos into the into the game and into the into the presentation and then um, you know, the the fact that we had that real kind of moniker attached to it meant that we needed to put a ton of effort into the presentation and the polish and the effects and the you know making things really kinetic and violent and and you know those things kind of layered together to uh, to create something I, th- I think pretty unique you know I mean we we had some of the tactical sensibilities of of uh, you know turn-based war games and some of the, d- the deeper tactical war games uh, but then this layer of presentation that I think reminded people of uh, of you know the big budget movies and it just it was a nice a nice mix it sort of you know serendipity it worked out really well and 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 people fell in love with it it definitely uh the design of company of heroes definitely imposed a i thought uniquely steep uh manager micromanagerial workload 
on players. It was it was an RTS that I spent far more time, uh, you know, sighting machine gun nests and sort of positioning tanks and sort of managing, you know, their orientation. Uh, far more time doing that than I did on sort of looking after uh, my economy or, or base management kind of stuff. And at the time, you guys had done a little bit in that direction with Dawn of War, but at the time it was still a, a fairly sharp departure from most other RTS games. It was it was it really sort of created this this notion of relic doing something fundamentally different with the genre. Yeah, I mean, and and those you know those were in, intentional um, considerations. The fact that we wanted to to put more of the players' mind share into the tactical part of the game and um, tie any economic kind of development in the in the player strategy to uh, to the environment to you know moving out into the world and engaging in combat. Uh, which is where we we sort of saw the most fun, um, you know. There weren't uh, peons in the traditional sense in uh, in World War II in these you know highly mechanized and mobile armies, and so it wasn't something that uh, was ever considered as part of the game design. We we wanted to go with territorial control and tactical gameplay and cover and all those things right from the beginning. One of the things that always struck me about Company of Heroes is that it arrived. It arrived at this moment where I think World War II fatigue was just starting to set in. Uh, maybe, maybe, maybe it's just before uh, World War II peaked a, as a setting, but it was definitely arriving at this moment where you know we've had a number of years of Company of Heroes, uh, not Company of Heroes, uh, Call of Duties and such, uh, sort of working in that area and sort of channeling uh, you know Second Private Ryan, Band of Brothers, uh, but. Something that uh, Company of Heroes seemed to do really successfully was sort of find new, like, sort of find new territory in the World War II game. I, I think in part because of uh, really strong faction design. Uh, it, you know, it, it wasn't just you know it wasn't just another World War II game where it was just kind of using the um, you know the the superficial aspects of of what we'd seen in movies uh, and and shows to that to date, but it really seemed to be borrowing uh, a lot from sort of the historical record and sort of trying to get at uh, you know how did how did the United States Army and the Wehrmacht how did they really fight uh, you know what was what was the identify what were the identifying features of uh, the war on the Western Front uh, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you sort of approached uh, you know giving Company of Heroes it, it's you know, it, it's it's feel and it's factional identities. I, I think the, the the key part there is is using history as uh, as context and history as a guide. So we did a we did a lot of research. You know, we were reading a lot of books, we were watching a lot of movies, we were you know steeped in in documentaries and and um, you know what that I think sort of led us to to uh, to think about was. The, the design of the army as relates to the historical context of the battle in Normandy, uh, where the first game takes place. And we, we sort of worked with these army essences, which were it's sort of like the creative statement that drives the, the design of the army, that we wanted the Americans to be, you know, uh, mobile, less hard-hitting tanks, you know, more support options, which, you know, they had they had lots of money and, and time and, uh, you know, to build up these huge big forces uh, in, in real life. Uh, the Germans were, you know, were on the defensive foot, uh, you know, a little worn out, a little little beat up, a little more elite. So those are those are things that we work into the faction design. Sometimes in in a way that you know might be perceived as being really direct, like you know the the fact that the Americans got howitzers, you know, sort of provides all their artillery support. And sometimes right. they're things that are a little more subtle, like like uh, the way the dialogue is written. Uh, you know, the Germans were a little more embittered, and and all that stuff layers to create you know both 
gameplay and and also tone and and the things kind of uh, support each other and you know um, um, add up uh, to to being greater than the sum of the parts. Now. Shane, I want to talk a little bit about Opposing Fronts because it, it certainly seemed like uh, Opposing Fronts had had this had this tricky proposition uh, of sort of adding new factions to a game that uh, you know was already pretty strongly balanced and uh, really trying to do something different with uh, particularly one of the factions. I thought the uh, I thought the British played kind of unlike anybody else, and something that always sort of interested me about Opposing Fronts is, is that you know. Superficially, like a lot of these, you know, a, a lot of the combatants in World War Two, you know, everyone's using everyone's using armor, everyone's using artillery, everyone's using sort of the same pieces, uh, you know, it's, it's and yet they 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 fight very differently, and with the with the British in particular, you, you guys seem to really depart uh, sharply from how anyone else operated, and I kind of want to talk about you know sort of the challenge of throwing a complete curveball into a, a completed RTS. Yeah, it was definitely a big challenge. You know, when I came in, the, the factions, the themes of them were, were set already. And the idea behind the British specifically was we want to make uh, a faction that's capable of turtling, you know, and, and a competitive turtling team. Um, ultimately, as the metagame unfolded when the game launched, that, that didn't turn out to be the case. But um, being able to build, you know, what the community calls Sim Cities, where you just build these gigantic, you know, mini cities of different fortifications and giving these fortifications a lot of power was really key. And then, you know, if you kind of look at the British and the Wehrmacht as, as the middle factions, they kind of are a little left to the right. Um, on the far left, you've got the super defensive British. And then on the far right, you've got this very, very mobile Panzer elite faction, which is the second faction from opposing fronts and using that kind of as our, our guideposts. But it was, it was really difficult because there were a lot of things that, um, you know, I think the team had learned building the original company of heroes that we kind of had to break and rediscover um, going into opposing fronts. The the other faction you you, met, you just mentioned the Panzer Elite uh, were, were in some ways even sort of harder to grok than the uh, than the British. The British definitely have this. Um, it, it seems like the British kind of operate on two principles: one is leadership, and the other is on uh, entrenchment, turtling. Uh, the 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 Panzer Elite. There, there is an interesting, there is an interesting situation because really you're dealing with just more Germans, right? Uh, so you've got to give them a distinct, you know, identity from the Wehrmacht. And so my question to both of you is, uh, how did you sort of approach the design of uh, the the Panzer Elite and find something else to do with, uh, you know, the Germans? Well, I, I think from uh, from my perspective, we were looking at um, something that would be akin to like a mechanized division. You know that uh, the the Wehrmacht would sort of be the the kind of bread and butter forces of the of the German army, and then the Panzer Elite we viewed as kind of being mechanized troops. You know, mobile half tracks, uh, building a lot of, of variation in in their 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 half tracks. That you know they had the 250 and 251s and various kinds of uh, of um, you know anti-tank and mortar and support and all that kind of stuff, and so it was to, it was to really build kind of a German mechanized force, um, and I think in some ways you know they kind of ended up misnamed. You know when people think of Panzers, they think of tanks, and and right. we actually had surprisingly few tanks in the army, which was a little bit a little bit weird. Um, but uh, you know they like the both of those armies were were in some cases I think a a, a testament to to targeting that army essence and um, actually. 
to a degree being a little bit too successful at it. I think we uh, we uh, we kind of stuck too much to the guns of our essence statements in terms of trying to give people a different experience. And I, I think you know the breadth of of uh, of that. Um, you know, the span from the British, uh, as, as Shane put it, you know, the defensive British to the mobile Panzer Elite might have been a little bit too broad for some of our players. Um, but they all had really interesting things. And, and um, you know, we see we see people who, uh, you know, the British are their favorite armies. It's just the style they like. They like to dig in, hunker down, and, and blow the crap out of stuff. And, and um, you know, so, you know, it gives them something to play with. Yeah, I think a, a big thing, too, that, was really successful in the Panzer Elite design was the flexibility of the half tracks and that you could, you know, um, let's say your opponent was was coming in with, with tanks and armor, you could throw some guys with with rocket launchers in the back of the half tracks and then you've got an anti-tank force. But then you retreat from the line and he comes in with infantry, well then you load up guys with machine guns into the half tracks and suddenly you've got this mechanized anti-infantry unit. So in the same way that the British kind of, you know, you, you'd hunker down, you would set your strategy, and you would invest in these big, huge installations as you would build out your areas. The opposite to that was the extreme flexibility of the Panzer Elite and just being able to change your game all the time. And every time that I play Panzer Elite, I can identify the point where I should have changed my tactic and when I lose. When I win, I usually made the right decision. But when I lose, I made the wrong decision about what I would have put in the half track or what my tactic was for that particular battle. And that flexibility is one of the really cool things. And this, the mobility and the entrenchment and then the flexibility and the long-term planning of the British, those all played against each other in the design. And, and yet, Quinn, I, I picked up some... Perhaps we'll call them regrets or second thoughts about the faction design in opposing fronts, and certainly I know that uh, among among some players there was an attitude that uh, I saw. I remember a, a lot of complaints being centered around the the British in particular. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I was wondering if maybe you could go in a little bit to uh, what you think was problematic about some of the things you did in that expansion, and what you learned from that. I think um, like like in terms of the faction design for the for the British, you know, if I'm if I'm doing a kind of a post mortem on them, uh, the one thing I think we um, we put too much uh, power into was the officers. Uh, mm-hmm. So it, it what it allowed them to do was was to be very very defensive and then also um, put together a very very powerful offensive force by using uh, the lieutenants and when they're the lieutenants and when they gained veterancy and they applied uh, buffs to units around them uh, you could stack those guys like three lieutenants together into a big force with guys around and everything kind of stacked and, and buffed each other and it was really I think counter to um, the kind of uh, an, you know sort of blob anti-blob mentality and, and mm-hmm. so it, it introduced a couple of things that competitive players don't particularly like which is I think a lot of defensive stuff because uh, they want a freewheeling, fast-moving game and uh, the blobbing. Um, so we never quite got a handle on on the, the I think the buffing bonuses on the on the lieutenants in particular, uh, and and that's that's probably the one regret I have about that system was their their um, their their kind of extreme swing from defense to offense. But you know, I like like overall, I think um, you know it it 
when we looked back to it, was, it was kind of like, you know, what, what player base are we not servicing with the current armies? You know, the Americans and the Wehrmacht at the time were, you know, it, it made for a, for a, a challenging and exciting experience, but um, there were, there were sort of the spectrums of our player base that uh, uh, we felt would have, would have benefited from some new army designs. And that was part of the, the, uh, the sort of um, design goal of those armies as well was to give those guys like, the players who like to play the choke point maps against the AI, let's give them something fun to play with. Yeah, that was that was something I wanted to bring up a, a bit was the this idea that it, it seems like in in RTS design you're often serving uh, you know at least two masters, and one of those is the desire for players to have that sort of more open, more competitive, uh, more fast-paced uh, RTS game. But then you do have players who sort of like to uh, maybe control the pace of the game a little more, slow it down, make it a little more static, uh, a little more comfortable. And I, one of the things I really liked about the uh, British faction, I, I tend to be, I, I'm not a terribly strong RTS player, I tend to be, I, I tend to sort of operate like that. And one of the things that I enjoyed about the uh, the British was the this this idea that I could finally sort of slow the game down and more, you know, expand via, you know, offensive-defensive, right? Like, new lay out new positions, dig in, you know, try to throw back counterattacks, then push out more. I really enjoyed that about the British, but I can't understand why it was also a bit maddening. And I guess, you know, what what interests me is this, is this idea that... Uh, you 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 often have this hardcore that will say changes like that make it a worse game. Uh, they tend to get very unhappy with that. But at the same time, a, a changes like that also make it more appealing to a wider variety of players. It's one of those things where maybe balance and uh, fun are kind of at war with each other a little bit. Yeah, it's a it's a challenge. Um, you know, because you you know the the competitive community is is vital. I think for the long term. Uh, and and it's important to support them with with features and and gameplay because they're they're often the sort of they're the early adopters they're the most vocal they play the game for forever and ever and ever they bring a lot of value they bring a lot of players in themselves through you know through uh, through their efforts um, but at the same time you know you you do want to try and open the game up to to as broad an audience as possible and, and part of that can be done through through faction design uh, I think you know in, in going forward you know faction design for the for the future we want to try and stay closer to the core principles of the of the game you know it's sort of a, a lesson I, I think we've learned i think there's probably new ways now to encourage a broader cross-section uh, of the audience the tools that we didn't have before you know social tools and and other interaction uh kind of methods that we didn't have on coh that 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 we could use and and uh, and bring in new guys. So, it it is a it is a challenge because this you know the the community you know and I, I think I've said it before they can often be their own worst nightmare uh, you know their their own worst enemy, um, you know, they can be inclusive but at the same time uh, they can be really intimidating and that's trying to you know get a balance of those behaviors too. It almost sounds a bit like and I'm and I'm just 
curious if if this is a if this is a correct supposition. It almost seems like uh, you know from the way you describe it, Shane, the the British and the Panzer Elite were designed uh, very much as counterparts to each other. And I'm wondering if did the problem really crop up when you sort of started to merge those with the original game that you had sort of if you had like the the Panzer Elite fire and the British ice, did you run into, <laughs> did you run into some problems with bringing those two completely opposing doctrines into play against uh, two slightly more general purpose armies. Well, I think it's, I don't know, like, I don't see the problem that Quinn does, but I'm much more of a casual RTS guy. I'm not, you know, I'll watch the streams and the competitive side, but I don't play at that level. And yeah. I think as, as a casual player, I don't think there's this huge gap. I think that they they address the needs. And when I talk to people who play Company of Heroes, almost universally, they're casual players and they really like that tone. So I don't think there's a, a giant mistake there. But I do think, you know, if if they went 180, deg- we went 180 degrees one direction, I think if we would have gone 120 or 90 degrees, it would have been really still really good. It would have addressed the needs of the players that want to play a slower game or a faster game or a more flexible game. Whatever they're looking for in a faction and how they want to play, um, you know, we could have held back a little bit and not gone all out and still satisfied that player but also not segregated the players into their own little silos of what kind of faction they play. Um, you know, you, you want to have something, the kind of game where you have a player might say, you know what, when I'm playing allies, I play either side. But if I want to, you know, depending on what I feel like that day, as opposed to saying, I just play British, that's all I ever play. You want the, the players to have a lot of flexibility across the factions that they play. Yeah. I'd, I'd love for, you know, a, a game, you know, like, like, uh, you know, if if all of the players were able to to play all of the armies, I think uh, you know people do. They you know for competitive reasons, they really want to try and specialize. But um, you know, I love the idea of kind of broadly applied sort of skills and and techniques and and being really good at at a bunch of stuff. Uh, uh, kind of to me indicates somebody who's really good at the game. If they can play and win with every army, that's somebody who's really good. And if they can play and have fun with every army, then you know I think that's a good goal for casual players. They don't they don't need to win, but every army should give them something fun to do. Something else that uh, I think remains fairly distinctive uh, when it comes to Company of Heroes is the role played by destructible uh, destructible environments. That the the closest parallel I can come to actually is probably. Um, the maps in the in Battlefield Bad Company 2. Uh, but it's a similar sort of thing where the map begins as one sort of tactical space. Uh, and then over the course of the battle, it completely changes, sometimes sometimes drastically, uh, as as the uh, battle takes its toll on, uh, you know, buildings, um, you know, foliage, that kind of thing. And I guess, you know, I'd like to hear you guys talk a little bit about, uh, you know... First of all, was that was 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 that just was that just a pro, was that always something you guys had had in mind, and it was just an opportunity? Uh, you guys finally had technology to do that, uh, or was it, you know, kind of just something you realized you could do, uh, and, and then sort of made it a seminal feature of the uh, tactics? I I I think it was uh, it was something we had in mind from from very early. We we put together kind of a uh, a gameplay video. Um, 
you know, very, very early in the process that showed, you know, squads moving and using cover and, and uh, attacking a, a German machine gun uh, position in a building and throwing in a, a satchel charge. Um, and and that sort of pr predicted or, or showed the desirable behavior of, of all of the systems that we saw interacting on, on the battlefield. That included destruction and destructible cover and uh, vehicle criticals and, you know, different weapon types and movement types and all the kinds of stuff that, that you know, CUH turned into. So that was a great tool for us. Uh, but to get that stuff to work, oh my word, that was like... A, that was an incredible amount of, of work. Just the destructible buildings alone, um, you know, was, was sort of like one of our technical artists for for three years straight, it seemed, just working on those buildings and figuring out all the bugs and issues. So it was a lot of work to support that. Um, and it's one of these things where as designers, you know, you, you know you want something like destructible buildings, but... Um, but you don't know exactly what the gameplay is going to be. You know, you can predict some of it, but you're not 100% sure until the system is in and then you sort of see how it works. And so it was a lot of a lot of back and forth and a lot of tuning and a lot of adding of details and, and changing, you know, the, the design to kind of fit better with the tech and the visuals. And so that game was a lot of back and forth uh, in the in the sort of the engine development and gameplay side to get it all to work. Yeah, and I think the maps, they really encapsulate something that's unique in RTSs, you know, when I think of Company Heroes compared to other RTSs, you think about a kid with ants, and in most RTSs, you, you've got a magnifying glass, and you're burning them one by one. Uh, when you play Company of Heroes, you come in with a big set of rubber boots on, and you just start stomping around the anthill, and everything's running around, and it's a completely different anthill when you're done. And, you know, what we used to do that always fascinated me is, you know, we'd be playing games uh, all the time, uh, Relic, and at the end of the game, especially that I'd come over and I'd watch Quinn and his team work. And at the end of the game, they would sit there for another 20 minutes scanning over the map and telling stories to each other like, oh, remember when you flew this glider into here? Remember when I got you here? And the map is literally a retelling of the story of the battle that just took place. And that's something that you don't find in, in very many other uh, RTSs are very many other games and still to this day when I go online and I play some games I'll spend you know five minutes after the game looking at the map and thinking about oh man I should have done this here and just remembering those moments and the map as a, a record of the story is a really unique thing that I really think sets Company of Heroes apart and something that is almost an accidental result of of the decision to do destructible environments that was very much a design focused thing but the retelling is is an experience that that's yeah. really unique. We we use that that sort of very consideration when we when we uh, sort of uh, uh, redesigned uh, or reimagined the the creative brief for Company Heroes Two. And one of the things for that session based gameplay, you know, is that every battle tells a story. And we wanted to make sure that the system supported that kind of ebb and flow and comeback and and the destruction and the and the and the visualization of that and and you know just like Shane said that sort of the story of the battle writ large on the on the terrain uh, and getting together afterwards and talking about what had happened we you know that's a real goal for uh, for the multiplayer um, you know is, is to to think about and you know kind of the narrative experience that the player undergoes every time they they play the game. You know, time of the. Time of the anthill uh, there for a second got me thinking about just the uh, really unusual pacing of Company of Heroes. When I, when I was playing the Company of Heroes 2 beta, um, I think a month ago, uh, it was the first time I played Company of Heroes in months and months and months. And I had this sort of, um, 
you know, is RTS culture shock almost. As once again, I have to relearn how to play, how to, how to handle the pacing of a Company of Heroes game. Because I've been spending a lot of time with games like StarCraft and such, which are more like, you know, there's the, the, the ritual expansion, right? Well, it's, you know, we're at four minutes, time to put, you know, time, time to, you know, put down that, uh, time to put down the barracks. Uh, and at 10 minutes, we'll have the second command center down and begin, uh, you know, putting together the early pressure. Company of Heroes has this weird, um, almost like whack-a-mole gameplay. Uh, it sounds pejorative, but it's really not. Uh, it's, it, you know, the Company of Heroes is not a game where you can achieve and retain map domination very easily. It's more a game about just sort of grabbing what you can while it's available, and then just bailing out when it becomes inconvenient and going and reacting to something else. And what always surprises me about Company of Heroes is that it, it leaves me in this really deeply uncomfortable place compared to a lot of other RTS games, because compared to, like, compared to these other games, what you can actually control in, in Company of Heroes, how much of the map you can truly dominate, is really small. And much of the game comes down to uh, a series of meeting engagements between you and your opponent. And I guess I'd just like to uh, hear you guys talk a little bit about, you know, where you know where that's coming from because there really there really aren't too many there really weren't too many parallels uh, again in other RTS games and then the way that sort of plays into the uh, the the split resource system uh, to to sort of give Company of Heroes its character. Oh yeah, that's a that's an interesting one. Um, you know, it, th there's probably a, a number of fundamental things from like from a gameplay perspective that that kind of uh, uh, create that kind of gameplay. One is that you know we we, we don't have kind of unlimited, you know, unlimited resources, but uh, you know there's a finite number of resources on the map, and it's kind of a zero sum game. You know, if I take some uh, away, there those are resources that you don't have. So you're you're fighting over kind of a limited number of resources, and so you can't grab a natural expansion point and double the army size and and uh, and double your troop output because you're you're essentially capped by available uh, resources on the on the map, uh, and we also have you know relatively small forces. Um, they're you know they're relatively durable, so you can you can kind of maintain them and reinforce and re retreat and repair and and do all those kinds of things. And so I think what what you have is not a ton of forces fighting over a number of limited uh, resource points, and uh, with kind of a, a zero sum game, especially on the fuel and munitions. And so I think that kind of creates that um, that sort of you know flank counter flank is kind of the way we put it. You know I got to find a I got to find a weak spot here to grab, you know pieces and more than one piece I think is kind of the goal. Uh, and so you end up with that you know that sort of uh, uh, players kind of punching and counter punching trying to find a, a kind of a weak spot and 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 then seize and you know holding a lot of ground is. Uh, is is challenging in in uh, in COH. You know you can hold pieces for a certain amount. Uh, you know, machine gun early is is beneficial, but it's not going to last forever before somebody comes out with something armored, and so you constantly have to to reimagine your strategy and think about kind of a more active defense as opposed to a kind of a, a, a ter territory lockdown. And you know, there's there's probably a few things there that contribute to that to that feel. You know, um, and then you know, tonally, it's like it's about presenting kind of company sized engagements. You know, between between these forces and and uh, and that's you know part of that's the limited number of troops, but um, it's also I think a design consideration because 
you know, a hundred guys you can manage, two hundred guys, forget it. It's just it would just be, you know, chaos. I think a big thing that that Quinn touched on there too is how important retreating is in Company of Heroes. You don't just send off your your infantry squads to to die on the battlefront. You know, you want to bring them back, restaff them, send them off again with more experience, and and help them level up and grow. And that sort of in a lot of RTSs, you know, two forces will clash head on and one will be decimated and the other one will advance um, or else there'll be a little bit of skirting in and out. But in Company of Heroes, as soon as a force gets weak, you're, you're hitting that T hotkey for retreat and getting them back to your headquarters to staff them up again and, and get them out. And I think that that leads to a lot of hit and run skirmish type battles as opposed to these colossal forces bearing down on each other. Yeah, that was that was something else I wanted to get into because it was um you you saw a bit of this in the original Dawn of War where you had guys sort of freak out and panic and it 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 paid to sort of bring them back to base and replenish and rearm. But that still seemed much closer to traditional RTS where it was yeah, you could do that, but a lot of times the casualties were going to pile up. A lot of these battles were sort of to annihilation. In Company of Heroes, it becomes this really different sort of RTS of um, force management in, in many ways, where more than most I can name, it becomes a game about, you know, you can lose the territory, uh, but if you lose the troops you were trying to defend it with, uh, then you're in real trouble. Uh, particularly, you know, for the Americans who have, you know, the the different ways the factions gain experience is another interesting twist here uh, that plays into how you how you manage your armies, right? The Americans gain experience through combat. If you've got a veteran American unit, you really don't you really don't want to leave those guys to die uh, to an MG42. Uh, with the Germans, the 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 math is different. Uh, it really comes down to can you afford afford the better troops, but it the that that experience system, the the emphasis placed on experience, uh, plus you know c- combined with the fact that your your guys can you know re- retreat and sort of replenish at base, creates an RTS that really poses this a very different sort of dilemma from from a lot of other games in the genre where you really have to think now you're not just fighting for territory, not just fighting for resources, but the troops themselves uh, represent... It, it's, it's much harder to weigh those exchanges uh, because of the way you guys have you guys managed experience. Yeah, it, it, that was always an interesting uh, sort of balance uh, uh, kind of uh, um, challenge as well with the, the way the guys uh, earned uh, their, their veterancy. And we wanted, obviously, to reward squad preservation um, and that was that, that came across most on the American side because yeah you can't you know if a, if a squad is of veteran three riflemen is wiped out uh, there's no way to get it back you know was the, the Germans when you've sort of bought that veterancy it uh, it applied to to all future units uh, coming out it was kind of the equivalent of of better quality training uh, in effect was kind of the the context for it uh, and so you know we we you had to look at things like the pricing and and uh, and the cost but um, it sort of it made the Germans um, uh, less sort of vulnerable to to losses later on. They were able to to you know to to kind of replace their grenadiers or whatever because they they'd invested in uh, in veterancy. But it, it was it was there was an interesting strategic element there because it was very very difficult to afford all all types of veterancy. You know we had like light vehicles and team weapons and and infantry, and so players would kind of uh, uh, strategize about their what they'd invest 
uh, in in terms of veterancy. And on the American side, it, it was about you know sort of unit preservation. How do I keep this Sherman that's got you know that's up to Vet three from being wiped out by an, by an anti tank gun? Uh, puts different stresses and strains on the on the on the player's mind share on the battlefield that way. So going back to uh, what, what were you calling them earlier? The uh, was it Force Essences? Uh, yeah, sort of the uh, the the Army Essence statements. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So you know, translate a translate a bit of that for me because I'm, I'm I'm curious, you know, where where like what were you guys looking at in particular when it came to uh, sort of how you would approach uh, you know these aspects of how different armies fight and, and gain experience? Like, what sources were you drawing from? Oh, a variety. Um, I mean, part of it is the you know it's kind of the expectation of what the army was like, uh, kind of based on popular culture references, you know, the, the Band of Brothers and Saving Private mm-hmm. Ryan, the things that people had had some framework for um, for understanding. And then, um, you know, it's uh, it's the, the history and stuff that we had read, you know, the, the, the old World at War series. And, you know, we burned holes in some of those DVDs watching them and rewatching <laughs> them just to, just to get the kind of feel for them. Um, so we, we talked about, you know, this kind of the, 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 the racial tone or the character or the army essence there's a few different ways of of describing it but it's kind of like it's kind of like what what were the the key you know statements about the german army fighting in normandy and and how do we translate those into some game mechanics that make sense um and how do we translate that into presentation and and tone that makes sense as well so it's not just gameplay it, it ends up being about about how they look and feel, and and uh, even the unit selection to a degree. You know, we, you know, that's why the Germans have tigers and king tigers and and those kinds of things. Um, it was part of their part of their ethos, part of this like super high tech, super heavy. Um, you know, the Americans had very little uh, equivalent, and and that's a good way to start to differentiate the the armies. Uh, and uh, you know, another thing we we uh, we talk about is is asymmetry uh, and finding armies that play very differently and and uh, and feel different. That's that's a core part of Company of Heroes as well. Yeah, when looking at the overall tone of opposing fronts versus the original Company of Heroes, one thing you know we trumpeted a lot was you know we're trying to direct this whole team to to capture a tone for the game. The art and the design and the audio all have to represent the same kind of tone and. The original Company of Heroes was very much that Western Front war story of the Americans are coming, here they come, you know, that that traditional story where Opposing Fronts was a much darker story. Uh, If you look at the two factions, you've got the British who literally have been through hell, you know, they've been bombed, uh, they've they've held the line, they've had allies come and go, and they've had nothing but, you know, it's just been this terrible punishing life for them. And finally, they're on the offensive. And so they've got this gritty, bitter flavor to them. Um, and then on the other side, you've got the Panzer Elite. And at this point in the war where opposing fronts is happening is, is the war is a losing front. And they're not fighting on the invading side anymore. They're not the Germans on the offensive overwhelming Europe. They're fighting for their homeland. And so they've got a very different tone than the Wehrmacht when it comes to, to audio and design, because from them, they're they're protecting to, they're fighting to protect their family back home and keep the allies out of the fatherland. And so, those that tonal difference from the the first game to opposing fronts was was really really key for everyone on the project. Now, one of the things that uh, certainly sur- surprised me is that after opposing fronts, I sort of you know started an egg timer basically and said, okay, you know, 
Soviets are coming any day. Like, Company of Heroes, Eastern Front. Like, we've done Opposing Fronts, Eastern Front, that's like, you can set your watch by it. We're going to get that, like, right away. Um, and then time went by. And then more time went by. And I, I, I'm kind of curious. It seemed like it was just such an, it was such an easy move to make. It seemed like it was a no-brainer that, like, oh, of course, like, there's going to be Soviets, like, any minute now. Uh, I, I'm curious why the lengthy delay before committing to uh, CO2. To the Eastern Front, I should say. We uh, we actually did um, uh, uh, a fair amount of paper design for a Soviet um, a Soviet expansion army for for COH and uh, I, I you know I think some of those issues the delay and the uh, and the unwillingness to uh, to tackle another expansion pack are probably you know it's more of a publisher uh discussion because i know um i know when you know and when we would talk to thq guys in the past they were always they were personally a little bit mystified as to the strategy and why we hadn't um sort of continued with coh and supporting it um with you know with bigger content than than we did with say tales of valor which uh, which was actually intended to be three little dlcs as opposed to a, a box product um and, and so, you know, I, I'm 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 not quite sure of the publisher strategy. I think at, at Relic there was a willingness, um, you know, and then we we also had a couple of other uh, projects on the go and Coho started in and around there, uh, which was Company Heroes Online, and um, there was a new team starting up uh, that ultimately became Space Marine. So, you know, that it, it was it was a it was a crowded timeline, a crowded schedule, and um, and you know, I think there was the. the questions for the publisher about you know why why we didn't keep pushing on coh um frankly i'm a little bit glad we didn't because i i don't think in the in the in the engine in in the coh uh, the, the essence engine we would have been able to do uh what we have done with the soviets in in uh, in company heroes 2 so um it's uh maybe a little bit of a blessing that 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 didn't happen yeah, it, it occurs to me now when I when I think of what I envisioned the Eastern Front, you know, expansion to look like, uh, it was going to like snow and bigger tanks, and really, <laughs> like after that, I would like it was sort of running out of ideas. Uh, but you know, so maybe talk a little bit about you know approaching faction design and sort of giving uh, the war in the East its flavor. Uh, you know, you guys had a lot of time to consider it. Uh, what sort of what sort of change? What what changed and how you approached it over the over the years? Uh, what sort of new opportunities opened up for you uh, with, with sort of the the progress of uh, technology and tools? Well, there's uh, yeah, there there you know there was a lot of a lot of thinking about uh, about the Eastern Front and um, and again a lot of research. Um, I, I I literally have 50 books uh, sitting at my desk. Um, uh, on uh, on Eastern Front and and uh, and the armies, you know, the the sort of Osprey picture books, all the way to, mm -hmm. you know, these epic tomes on uh, on the the sort of four years of the Eastern Front. Um, so we really dug into the to the research, and we knew we had to do something tonally quite different because the the battle on the Eastern Front was a much different um, conflict than what happened on the Western Front. You know, there was there was uh, it was ideological, it was racial, it was um, you know a battle for survival, and and uh, and you know the Soviets and the Germans saw each other as as uh, as the sort of instrument of their of their um, of their extinction. So there these were. Um, were you know brutal engagements and no quarter given and and at a at a 
a size and scale and scope that the Western Front, um, you know, I mean, nothing comes close uh, to to even a, a you know a single operation on the Eastern Front in terms of casualties and, and and troops involved. It was just so much more massive. So that was you know that was an important part of kind of immersing ourselves in in the tone. And then you know from the engine development, we we looked at the kind of obviously the key geographical features and the key weather features that people would expect, you know, of the Eastern Front, the cold. We actually took a trip to uh, to St. Petersburg in, in uh, February, uh, and Berlin in February of, of 2011, um, you know, in the middle of winter, just to kind of see what that was like. And that kind of informed a lot of our, a lot of our uh, technical choices. Uh, and so, you know, the engine underwent a lot of, of updates and improvements in, in rendering and simulation and, and, uh, you know, to to sort of deliver on the tone and it all started with that kind of that kind of creative statement about you know that that you know this is this is about the ruthless truth of war this is about every battle telling a story this is a darker tone than coh um and and that was the the kind of the defining vision uh that that everything tech and 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 every discipline is in service to now Something that I was really skeptical of, and and Shane, have you played the? Uh, did you play the beta or the alpha at all? Yeah, I played the beta a bit. So uh, I'll be curious to hear your views on this. Something I was really skeptical of uh, when I first heard about it was sort of the um, the role that Cold plays in Company of Heroes Two. Uh, when I heard about like, oh, your guys, you guys are going to be like freezing to death if they're not near fires and everything, and I was thinking this sounds like the like gamiest uh most contrived thing like i've ever heard of like this just sounds this just sounds silly uh then when i played it though i absolutely loved what it did to the pacing like we already talked about the coming of heroes sort of unusual pacing to begin with but i I kind of adored how there's now this like two-step process to Company of Heroes 2, you know, the first is you're playing the traditional uh, Company of Heroes game, you know, fighting back and forth over resources. But then in, in the winter map, certainly, there's this, in, there's this entirely secondary consideration of, of staging the battlefield, of sort of laying the groundwork for what you're going to do in the gaps between blizzards. And it was, it's an example of, you know, something I, I still think is, you know, a, a you know, sort of a contrived way of approaching approaching the bitter cold of the Eastern Front, and and, and yet, in terms of what it does to the pacing and the gameplay, uh, I I really love how it completely changes uh, what what you're doing on the battlefield. Uh, Shane, like, did, did you have any reactions to it? Yeah, I kind of felt the same way. Um, knowing how Relic works, I uh, I kind of was reserving my judgment till launch on how the cold ultimately would play out because I know from when we were beta testing uh, opposing fronts how many changes can happen from the beta test to the final version, especially on those pacing things. But I I liked what it did. I don't know if it's I'm trying to think if you know if I avoided winter, winter maps that much and I didn't. I played them a lot and uh, yeah, I liked what it did. I think it needs there needs to be some tuning in terms of pacing and when it happens and, and how you manage that or else just more adjustment as a player to understand that this is a resource that you're managing. Yeah. I think part, part of the goal of that was, you know, obviously um, cold weather was a, was a, uh, a fact of life um, on the, on the battlefield in the Eastern front. Uh, I mean, obviously six months a year, the rest of the time it's mosquitoes and mud and swarms of 
who knows what. Uh, but the um, you know we wanted to find some ways to deliver the feeling, um, this the sort of the struggle, um, the sort of the, the simple necessities of life. And when you read some of these accounts, uh, where guys were fighting tooth and nail over the the tiniest of shelters because that meant that meant literal life and death. I mean, they're they're obviously fighting and killing each other. Um, but to lose that engagement meant you were out in the cold and you were definitely going to die. And and so these were these were bitter struggles in in the in the bitter cold. Uh, and you know when you when you look at game design, a part of it is you know th these are abstract rules, and what we're trying to do is find ways to portray a certain experience without, say, needing to manage uh, how many fingers have frozen off your guys, uh, you know, due to due to frostbite or or whether they have uh, cold weather gear, um, you know, those kinds of things. So it it's uh, it gives us a way, you know, for for kind of players to kind of understand, you know fire means heat heat means life um but at the same time we were we're helping to kind of enforce existing gameplay mechanics like if you're in cover you're getting shelter you're getting kind of you know the benefit of of a break from the wind and out of the blizzard uh and so cover is important in combat it's also important during a blizzard to at least you know sustain your guys you can survive in cover um, you can you can use troop transports to keep your guys, uh, and so it's kind of in, encouraging a little you know different mechanics that haven't seen a lot of use in the past. Like transports are always tough to get into RTS games, and so this gives them a, a really interesting functional role. And plus, they can move around the battlefield. You can capture when troops are in transports. So there's some some neat little benefits uh, to uh, to to that stuff. And and you know ultimately it's a it's a bit of a a bit of a learning you know learning tool it's not you know not everything we do in the game is about about gameplay some of it is about tone and setting and and uh you know having an impact on your decisions like like you know I, as a player i can choose to to kind of hunker down and and wait out the blizzard and play defensively uh or i can i can risk sacrificing some of my troops to seize some territory um, knowing that my opponent might be hunkering down, and you know those guys are gonna, some of them are gonna die, and so there's a choice there. Um, we tried to make their little their little deaths seem kind of um, um, you know tragic. They little coughs and steps, and they freeze and they fall over. Um, and part of that is to is to deliver that kind of sense of of um, of choice and consequence. Like I'm you know I, I'm gonna go on the offensive, but some of my guys are gonna are gonna suffer for it. Yeah, I've definitely had some truly depressing firefights during uh, the blizzards where, like, you know, I am taking that fuel point, and I don't care, you know, what I have to give up to do it, but by the end, it's, you know, a couple guys slowly dying, uh, sort of bludgeoning each other with submachine guns while a couple tanks are sort of, you know, sitting there, uh, you know, blazing away, but it, it turns, it, it you know, because of the way, like, Owing something also to to the art of the game and the graphics, you know, the way it just looks with the the snow sort of blowing over them, they sort of like you know fade into these sort of ghostly figures uh, on the battlefield, uh, slowly you know freezing to death uh, in the middle of this of this bitter fight for a you know for a, for a fuel point. It it really it really does it, it really is quite uh, evocative of a lot of things you you read about the Eastern Front, and then yeah, just as a player. Uh, I, I'm I, I really love having to weigh that 
to weigh the benefits of trying to seize that point, trying to conduct defensive operations, uh, you know, during the cold, uh, because it's just it's 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 such a neat change uh, from from what I've done in, in previous Company of Heroes. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, you know, it, it really extends the the in, environmental kind of gameplay aspects. It's you know, like we we had rain, we added rain in um, in uh, opposing fronts as. A, a purely a visual element. There was there wasn't any really significant gameplay attached to it, and so we wanted to make sure that this wasn't just. It's not just you know a white texture on the ground and and uh, and and some you know some snowflakes. It's you know the snow has depth. You know, you leave tracks. The blizzard comes in and it can actually wipe those tracks out and kind of cleans up the battlefield. And then you can see where your enemy's moving again after the blizzard because he re- you know leaves new tracks. And so there's all these layers of of feedback that you know a, a, an aware player can kind of take advantage of. Um, and 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 you know an aware player can can take advantage of those systems as well. That um, you know on on first blush you you know you uh, you might not want to. Uh, to, to do like you know your your reaction in a blizzard might be just okay I'm just gonna hunker down, but really there are options that open up because of that blizzard. You know it changes like you said it changes the pace. Um, it gives you more decision points. It gives you more visual feedback and and environmental feedback and kind of you know puts a nice white layer back on the battlefield and kind of uh, reinvigorates the you know the the tracking gameplay and all that other stuff that comes out. So now when it comes to faction design for the Eastern Front. Um, how do you, there had to be some worry that in some way this was going to feel like, uh, you know, Company of Heroes greatest hits, right? That if it was, if it was, if it was too much like originally original Company of Heroes, uh, it, it would sort of raise the question of, well, how is this different beyond, uh, you know, just, just the fact that now you've got to sort of, uh, battle the elements as well. Uh, so like. When I, when I consider the Soviets and, and the war in the East, the Soviets in many ways sort of seem like the American army uh, in that you've got a lot of, uh, you know, not battle-hardened troops, a lot of inexperienced troops uh, sort of overpowering the Germans uh, through sort of weight of numbers and uh, industrial capacity. And uh, I, I'm curious what you. Uh, I'm curious how you how you tackle the problem of making the eastern making the Eastern Front uh, feel. You know, the the factions fighting on the Eastern Front feel distinct from the way you use them, uh, from the way you use from the way you fought on the Western Front. Well, we we wanted to inject some new elements, but to a degree, we actually wanted some familiarity. Uh, you know, to both to to give our uh, existing players something uh, comfortable to return to. Uh, because we'd made a lot of changes to underlying systems and, and uh, you know, the engine was different. And, and, you know, sort of out of necessity, you end up with slightly different feel in certain areas. And so uh, from the army design, we wanted to give them something, um, you know, something comfortable. That, uh, that if they, you know, if they'd played the Americans, the Soviets would feel relatively comfortable coming back to. But, um, you know, there's enough differences, I think, at, at the unit level, um, your so your early choices, the mechanics like the conscripts and, uh, and their ability to merge, that give the Soviets uh, kind of a pretty unique flavor. They're more they're more rigid um, in terms of their tech tree, for instance. You know, it's it's uh, um, for them to get a really broad army out, they need to create multiple buildings um, to get both tanks and say tank destroyers. So there's some some challenges in in going broad with the Soviets as part of kind of their you know their doctrine. They were, they didn't have a lot of unit choices, and their 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 forces were were 
pretty uh, pretty rigidly structured. Uh, the Germans we we made, you know, um, I think relatively close to the COH Germans. They're sort of flexible. They've got good options coming out of every building. They're technologically advanced. Uh, they've got some uh, some big heavy tanks. It, it, they feel, you know, German. And so there's a there's a nice contrast there. But but no, we 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 definitely wanted to start from a from a, a place of relative comfort uh, for returning players, especially. You mentioned toward the start of the podcast, uh, you have more tools now to appeal to more casual players, uh, more more social stuff. Uh, and one of the things that certainly I noticed in the beta, and you know, just uh, these sorts of things always leave me feeling a little bit apprehensive, is a heavy use of an experience system. Uh, you know, little upgrades, little buffs, some cosmetics, some uh, some giving you just a, just a little bit of just a little bit of a bonus in, in one area or another. And I, I'm I'm curious how how you go about balancing something like that because it always struck me uh, when I when I was playing Age of Empires Online, something that seemed really hard to to balance was the fact that on the one hand these these goodies are kind of neat and it should be sort of fun and uh, empowering to unlock them and have access to them. Uh, but on the other hand, if you go too far with that, if you can actually feel the difference uh, between your between your vanilla units and your and your kitted out units, uh, then you've kind of screwed up the balance because now it's kind of a grind game. And so I, I'm I'm wondering how you are sort of uh, approaching that uh, that tension. Well, we uh, yeah we 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 saw uh, some of that tension inherent in the in the design we we saw some of that in in our early kind of beta feedback um you know there, there's a few things like the i think the you know the system in particular you're talking about is the intelligence bulletin system um and what that does is it um there, there were actually a couple of considerations for that system um that preclude any any sort of uh, gameplay impact at all uh, one is that um we wanted something kind of historically contextual that that you know we they they literally on the russian front they they handed out little pictograms of german units that had you know a picture of a of a molotov you know like a it was it was a picture of a tiger tank and the little arrow throw your molotov on the top deck <laughs> yeah. you know, shoot at the sprockets with with weapons of all calibers you know blind them with smoke grenades you know all like these were just they're ways to kind of inform the frontline soldiers, and because none of them can, or very few of them could read, they actually were in a, in a in a pictogram format. Um, they're a way to kind of comfort the frontline soldiers, like you know, it's like you might see a tiger, don't worry about it. Here's ten ways you can knock it out. Right. Um, and and so part of that was actually a way to kind of give the player. Uh, information. There's, here's a here's a whole bunch of interesting kind of historical facts that you can kind of, you can read about, uh, about you know these units and their actual use and and so it's 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 a way to kind of provide a bit of information um all of those things are are also tied to achievements so this is this is a way to sort of use uh an achievement that you've unlocked and because those those intelligence bulletins require kind of completion actions you know there's a you must do like kill 100 conscripts with machine guns for instance it it actually gives the players little jobs to do that teach them about 
the units, that machine guns are good counters for infantry, and anti-tank guns are good counters for tanks, because now you have something to accomplish with your anti-tank guns, and learn about the strategy, and knock out tanks, and we'll give you a little reward, and a little bit of information, and, and sort of something you can complete, and something goes on your steam achievement, and so all that was really, from my perspective, was the primary consideration, and then when it came down to the sort of the little rewards, we, we just, we kept them small, and so balance, you know, is less of a concern. Uh, we didn't want to give you like 50% uh, damage bonus, so you know there's a few percent here and there, enough to kind of make a difference in a long engagement, but not enough that uh, you know the balance team is going into tizzies. Yeah, I was I was I was interested interested to see it there, uh, and I, I'm sort of I'm sort of happy to hear that uh, because it it definitely seems like a system that can. Uh, you know, if you, if you played uh, Age of Empires Online uh, when it came out, it's a system that can definitely play havoc uh, with, with, uh, with with balance, especially toward the low end of the spectrum. Um, yeah, I, we're we're really concerned. We're I mean, we're concerned about maintaining this idea of fairness that people, you know, people in in I think in uh, in RTS games, they're they're relatively conservative. The communities they don't you know they don't want pay to win. They don't want massive advantages and so these are about about giving people little things that they can collect without drastically affecting the game and we've, we've even thought about having uh, competition loadouts for instance uh, that don't allow you to bring in uh, intel bulletins so it's just your commanders and so that that you know should allay any kind of fears about the the uh, bonus system in terms of competitive play so just to throw that in there as well Something that I've noticed in the last year uh, is, is that, and, and maybe you noticed this as well, Shane, but it, it certainly seems like every game now is taking the esports angle, the competitive gaming angle, uh, super seriously. Uh, you know, there's almost like name a genre now, and developers working in it are like, yeah, we're 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 approaching it like an esport. We're very excited about you know the the competitive options. Uh, you see this happening more and more in MMOs, and I'm curious whether or not. Um, Shane, you mentioned that when you were working on Company of Heroes, uh, Opposing Fronts, you, you were sort of approaching it more from, from the casual direction. And I, and I guess I'd, I'd be interested to hear, like, you know, with the Company of Heroes franchise, to what degree was the competitive scene, uh, you know, ever a major part of uh, your multiplayer community? And do you, do you feel that should have been more of a focus? Or do you think that focusing on competitive play can sort of maybe detract from the appeal of your RTS? I think, you know, when it comes down to game design, you absolutely have to focus on the competitive scene. Um, I remember when I first came in and, you know, I'd been making games for years before I'd started at Relic, but I hadn't worked on an RTS before. And I had this argument, I think it was with uh, with Josh and Quinn, actually, um, about balancing for the casual player or the competitive player. And I quickly realized that you have to balance and tune for the competitive player. Uh, because the casual player will figure it out. As long as the flavor's there, they'll get it. Um, but focusing on the competitive scene has always been a big part of, uh, you know, I think a, a relic ever since Dawn of War, the first one came out. Um, and I think there's various reasons, you know, I think uh, Company of Heroes didn't succeed in the competitive scene. I think a big part of that is the randomness factor of the game. Um, but the balance team at Relic is top notch. A lot of them are competitive uh, online players, whether they play Relic games or other games competitively. The balance team is top notch. There's, it's not unusual to have a Canadian StarCraft champion or two on the Relic balance team. And that perspective 
guides a lot of the balance and the focus on the competitive side to make sure that it's really engaging. And uh, the people who can't play at that caliber, we just kind of bow to their their wisdom. Yeah, it's it's a it's a challenge too because you know we I think traditionally we've uh, we've tended to typecast uh, casual players and competitive players. You know, we'd say well, like competitive players, they just want com- competition. They don't care about the way the game looks or feels. And and you know, I think that's uh, that's probably doing a, a disservice. I think you know what what helps everybody is is to get immersed in the game and engaged in the game is how it looks and feels you know the the gameplay systems are part of that and and uh, and an important part and so but there's there's a there's a spectrum you know like like the casual guys i think you know i'm i'm really enticed by how a game looks or feels i need that full kind of holistic you know breadth of experience from gameplay to to you know, to effects and audio and all those things, um, and so I think you know we invest a lot in 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 those areas in Company of Heroes, and we we try to give really interesting gameplay systems that you know the competitive players are going to like to uh, to enjoy. So you know when we're looking like in the in the future, you know we're not going to have every feature available at, at ship, but when when we think of of uh, supporting esports, it's about um, sort of. Uh, proselytizing the community. It's like giving the hardcore guys and the shoutcasters ways to to uh, deliver the game experience to other players. And like you know, it's, it's, you know, you see people on Twitch TV or on YouTube uh, watching uh, replays of games because you know, the like Company of Heroes when it's shoutcast by a good shoutcaster is really exciting to watch. Yeah. Um, because there's you know there's sort of real life looking stuff happening and and uh, you know th- th- it looks and sounds and feels different than than a lot of other RTSs maybe less abstracted so players can, I think can really can really enjoy how the game looks and we and that's something we want to support not that we want the game played at you know the WCG but that we want to give our community tools to help deliver the experience to other members of the community. Yeah, and I think a big thing too is remembering that the esports scene and the competitive scene is is a gateway for new players as well. When I uh, found out I was going to be taking over Company of Heroes, the first thing I did is I started looking for Company of Heroes podcasts, and I found Tale of Heroes, which was a at the time was a big community podcast, and they also did showcasting. And so I just spent a few nights, you know, before I started just every single night just watching replays and listening to the podcast. And so when I came in on my first day, I knew a lot about how the game worked, what the mechanics were at a competitive level, much more than I could ever understand, you know, playing through the campaign or a couple of casual online matches. And uh, I'm really big into the Street Fighter scene and the competitive esports scene on that side. And when you make your game available for that audience and the streamers and the showcasters use that, it lets your your casual players engage in, a, in the game at a much deeper level and really kind of dig into it and it gives them kind of a gateway to, st- to leveling up their play. And I think it's really key to support that community. And I know it's something we talked about a lot at Relic and I know they're, they're focusing on a lot on it right now. That was going to be the sort of my final question was like, you know, I can totally see where a where a uh, competitive community is is valuable, just in terms of sort of deep unpacking the game uh, for more casual players, uh, for making it look, uh, seem a little more exciting, and maybe keeping you guys a little uh, you know honest, uh, you know, as designers about your balance and, and what you've done with the game. But I'm curious, like, 
how uh, like how how far down the esports rabbit hole do you guys like talk about going? Like, do you guys see yourselves sort of like hosting, you know, hosting tournaments and encouraging, uh, you know, a, a you know a, a lot of uh, you know a lot of competitive events, a lot of activity on Twitch, uh, or do you more see it as something that is really just sort of up to the community? You know, they'll be the one if they if they want it to be a pro game, a, a competitive game, it's really down to them to organize. It, it's it's sort of down to them to determine, uh, you know, sort of like Fight Club, right? Choose your own level of involvement. Uh, I'm curious your approach with regard to competitive play. Well, I I don't think we are, we're, uh, we've completely established what that approach is. Part of it is, is, um, you know, a little bit reactive, like, like, you know, we, we think the game's going to do really well. um, And, uh, and we'd like to, to, to help, you know, uh, uh, make it grow, and so our level of involvement is, uh, I think, is probably predicated on, um, on you know, the sort of initial uh, success of the game, and and you know, Sega's willingness to kind of put in uh, support, and and the PR and marketing teams, you know, the kind of to, to sort of build buzz around these types of events. But we've got some great community uh, uh, sites that were we're sort of in, you know, in, in regular contact with, and what we need to do is give them the tools. Uh, and they've got, they've got the passion and the, and the time investment. Um, it's, it's just unbelievable to see those guys will do better, a better job, uh, at the, you know, hosting and, and tournaments and stuff than we, I think we ever could. So, um, yeah, we, we, we're not a, you know, we're not, I don't think we're a hundred percent sure on, on, um, on what that approach is going to be yet. But, um, you know, we know we've got guys we want to support and we know we've got features we want to get in and we'll try and do, you know, the, our best to get those features in and out to the public as quickly as we can. And, um, you know, and then we'll support them with some, some key events and, and some key spots and just try and identify the, you know, the, the top community guys and really kind of double down on, on, on allowing them to, to, uh, to support the game. Final question, just sort of a thought experiment. But if you were, you know, if you were going to expand on Company of Heroes 2, where do you think the series might go next? Oh, um, well, I mean, World War II is an awful, uh, an awful big story to tell. Uh, and so there's a, there's a lot of areas. Uh, you know, I'd be lying uh, if I said we weren't already considering uh, what those uh, new places are and what that means to the game and to the engine and all, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but, um, yeah, I mean, you know, I think we're excited about what we can do with the franchise and, and, you know, COH, um, is, is, you know, shortly going to enter its, uh, seventh year, right? Yeah. It was shipped in 2006. Uh, so, um, you know, there's a lot of people still playing and we want to, we want to be able to support company heroes Two the same way. This is a, a long-term proposition for us and for Sega. Um, and so there's a lot of stuff that I think we have, we have plans for, uh, you know, for the franchise over the long term. Um, but what's, what's interesting is one of the things we did, you know, I mentioned earlier that we had, we had looked at the creative vision again, uh, and reimagined it. And one of the goals of that creative vision was to make it setting agnostic. Uh, so, you know, whatever we do with Company of Heroes in the future, it doesn't have to be in World War II, for instance. Uh, you know, we uh, we have the ability now that we know what what we feel makes a company heroes game to set it almost anywhere. All right, we will leave it there for today. Um, 
Shannon Quinn, thank you so much for your time, and you are both uh, totally invited back. Uh, thank you for the fantastic discussion. Uh, and Quinn, hopefully, maybe we can get you back here uh, after Company of Heroes two releases for a uh, you know f- for a full post mortem and discussion of uh, you know th- the game as a whole. Yeah, I'd love to. Yeah, thanks a lot, Rob. Really appreciate it. Uh, that'll do it for today's show. Uh, as always, our thanks to our producer, Michael Hermes, for cutting this episode together, and we will join you next week. Uh, until then, good night. <laughs>